Hi there, and welcome back to Good Distinctions. <clears throat> I'm your host today, Will Wright, and Good Distinctions are the spice of life. Today, we're looking at the question, is Pope Francis a socialist or a globalist, one or the other, or both? See, a lot of people have been levying these sorts of things against the Holy Father for well, as long as he's been Pope, and perhaps even before that when he was uh, a cardinal from Argentina. And so I thought it would be good to look at this question from the point of view of his universal and uh, <clears throat> his his magisterium as Pope, right? Not necessarily what he thinks as a private individual, um, not what he thinks as a private theologian, but is in his general and universal magisterium, his ordinary and universal magisterium, I should say, um, what does he actually have to say about these topics? And so I think it's going to be a good exploration. And statements made about public figures are a dime a dozen. Individuals like Pope Francis, who are known throughout the world, garner certain reputations. Often these reputations are an amalgamation of rash judgment, detraction, or calumny. And in today's examination, I want to investigate the rather loaded question, is Pope Francis in favor of socialism and or globalism? For some, this seems like a foregone conclusion, and for others, the sentiment seems preposterous. And so I hope to shed a bit of light on the subject by sifting through the defining of socialism and globalism, looking at church teaching on the subject, and reviewing some statements made by Pope Francis. Maybe then we can get a little closer to understanding the mind of the Roman pontiff on the topic. However, first I want to look briefly at these three sins against respect for the reputation of persons. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states in uh, 2477, respect for the reputation of persons forbids every attitude and word likely to cause them unjust injury. So what are rash judgments, detraction, and calumny? Well, if we call into question the moral standing of another without sufficient foundation, we are guilty of the sin of rash judgment. Uh, we don't even have to be fully convinced of our neighbor's fault for the sin of rash judgment to be present. Avoiding rash judgment requires care and practice. When we encounter the thoughts, words, and deeds of another, we should attempt to interpret them in a favorable way. St. Ignatius of Loyola writes this. He says, every good Christian ought to be more ready to give a favorable interpretation to another statement than to condemn it. But if he cannot do so, let him ask how the other understands it. And if the latter understands it badly, let the former correct him with love. If that does not suffice, let the Christian try all suitable ways to bring the other to a correct interpretation so that he may be saved. And that's from Spiritual Exercises 22. Now, detraction is the sin of disclosing another's faults and failings to persons who did not know them without an objectively valid reason for doing so. To use the wording of the catechism, notice here that detraction seems to presume that the faults of failings uh, or failings of the other person are actually present. However, we need to take care not to share these faults and failings without an objectively valid reason. And finally, calumny is the sin of harming the reputation of another by providing remarks which are contrary to the truth. 
Um, when this happens, it invites others to make false judgments about the person being discussed. The problem with both detraction and calumny is that the, in the words of the catechism, destroy the reputation and honor of one's neighbor. Actions like these are vices opposed to the virtue of justice and the virtue of charity. So why bring up these three sins? Well, there's no shortage of armchair theologians interpreting the thoughts, words, and deeds of Pope Francis in an unfavorable way. And this is the sin of rash judgment. I myself have been guilty of this sin in regards to the Pope several years ago, and I repent of it. Uh, likewise, there are things which are sincerely problematic surrounding the Francis pontificate and the person of Pope Francis in the past 10 years. Not all of these personal conversations needed to be brought out to the public forum, especially not in the way that they are. For example, the letters of Archbishop Vigano would constitute, in my mind, consistent detraction against the Holy Father, especially these latter letters. And many of these letters also seem to fit the bill for calumny as well. And of course, there's widespread calumny against the Pope, as I'm sure there has been uh, against every Pope in history. Folks do love to gossip. Uh, they like getting some tea. Um, it's an unfortunate side effect of the fall and our concupiscence. So how does this apply to today's topic of socialism and globalism? And I'm, I'm going to try to avoid rash judgment, detraction, and calumny as I investigate the subject matter today. And I hope by giving a model for reading the pontiff charitably, all of us will be inspired to do likewise in the future and make good distinctions. And with all that being said, let's turn our attention now to socialism and globalism. Now, when you say socialism, most people immediately think of economics. And really, socialism is more broadly a political ideology with implications in both economics and sociological structures. And these structures are systems uh, or systems are predominantly centered around the means of production being controlled socially rather than privately. So the means of production are the land, labor and capital, which are used to produce products usually in the form of goods or services. If the land, labor, or capital in a given locale are owned by the government, by a co-op, by employees, or the like, this is an indication that socialist mechanisms are in play. After the introduction of the thought of Marx and Engels in the 19th century, a category of socialism was born which was called communism. And there's been a lot of iterations of socialism and communism, and the key distinction is that Communism is not concerned with social ownership of the means of production only, but also with socially designed means of consumption of products. At any rate, both socialism and communism are opposed to capitalism, which desires to keep the means of production owned by private firms and individuals. Now, globalism is an interesting term without really a set definition. It's usually used by right-leaning capitalists in a pejorative sense. Uh, in the 17th century, the Peace of Westphalia led to a world system in which several nation-states and independent nations created an interconnected economic system. And these world systems were not global as much as very large regional systems. Many of these world systems did not interact with one another, um, but then over the next two centuries, these world systems came into ever-increasing contact in a process 
known as globalization. So due to transportation communications advancements, this process took off at a feverish pace after the end of the Cold War in the 1990s. Goods, services, technology, capital, data, people, and the like move relatively freely across borders throughout the world. And as a result, global markets con continued to expand. In 2000, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, described four main aspects of globalization. One, trade. Two, capital. Uh, capital movements, rather. Three, the movement of people. And four, the spread of knowledge and technology. And that comes from the document Globalization, Threat, or Opportunity. Globalism is really the expression of globalization. So just as nationalism is the expression of nationality, and here, li here lies one danger, just as nationalism can go off the rails toward a well-intentioned but ultimately overzealous approach, so too can globalism devolve into an attempt to control uncontrollable mechanisms. So when governments and key global leaders in politics, business, and entertainment attempt to control global markets, the outcome leads to remarkably inefficient uh, things, which sadly lead to human suffering. And this is because a society which is not founded on the principles of subsidiarity and solidarity are doomed to radically disordered structures and systems. And for more on solidarity and subsidiarity, check out a previous episode on those topics. So are socialism and globalism related? And to an extent, yes. Many of the early socialists dreamed of a utopian world in which everyone had what they needed and suffering was minimized. And then when Marx and Engels began writing the Communist Manifesto, they did so in a world which was already experiencing the nascent groans of globalization with all its accompanying problems. Uh, their response was to instantiate a radical form of socialism. Planned socialist economies have been tried numerous times in the 20th century, and the result has always been widespread death, suffering, and even genocide. Globalism is more or less an attempt to understand the mechanism and intricacies of globalization. And this is nothing more than a desire for more knowledge about how the structures which exist in the world actually work. The problem is when globalism takes on a more intentional twinge and it mixes socialist policies. The socialist or the globalist could dream of a world in which social structures control land, labor, and capital in order to produce goods and services for a global market. And these social structures could be the United Nations, the European Union, or even the neoliberal and neoconservative efforts of nation building seen after the Cold War. <clears throat> so now moving to the church. Pope Pius XI, in his work Quadragesimo Anno, writes this. He says, in socialism, uh, rather, if socialism, like all errors, contains some truth, <clears throat> which moreover the Supreme Pontiffs have never denied, it is based nevertheless on a theory of human society peculiar to itself and irreconcilable with true Christianity. Religious socialism, Christian socialism, are contradictory terms. No one can be at the same time a good Catholic and a true socialist. 
Likewise, the Catechism of the Catholic Church states in 2425, the Church has rejected the totalitarian and atheistic ideologies associated in modern times with communism or socialism. Pope Leo XIII, in his masterwork, Rerum Novarum, wrote in 1891 that to remedy these wrongs, the socialists working on the poor man's envy of the rich are striving to do away with private property and contend that individual possessions should become the common property of all, to be administered by the state or by municipal bodies. They hold that by thus transferring property from private individuals to the community, the present mischievous state of things will be set to rights, inasmuch as each citizen will then get his fair share of whatever there is to enjoy. But their contentions are so clearly powerless to end the controversy that were they carried into effect, the working man himself would be among the first to suffer. They are moreover emphatically unjust, for they would rob the lawful possessor, distort the functions of the state, and create utter confusion in the community." One of the key tenets of socialist ideology is contempt for private property, which is something that the Catholic Church ardently defends. Pope Leo XIII even speaks of the inviolability of private property as a principle. Likewise, Pope Leo XIII speaks of socialists as setting up a state supervision at the expense of parents, which he calls an act against natural justice, which would destroy the structure of the home. Turning to globalism, because it's so ill-defined, <clears throat> we will be hard-pressed to find many denunciations or affirmations of it. However, we can see clearly that the Catholic Church is not opposed to a transnational corporate approach, given that it is the oldest and most interconnected organization in the world. Where the rubber meets the road on this question is between progressives in favor of an international and anti-nationalist view of global structures, and a conservative and more isolationist view. Now, between these two views is a wide diversity of ideologies of varying degrees, so we don't want to fall into a trap of extremism. From my perspective, I think both extremes have something to offer. On the side of the internationalist progressives, I think there's value to their critique that there is an American exceptionalist version of Catholicism, which reads into everything the Vatican does as pertaining exclusively and directly to the United States. This sort of nationalism might be appropriate for navigating diplomatic relations between nations, but it's prideful and ridiculous on the global Catholic front. I don't doubt that Pope Francis has spoken vaguely about the Western world in the United States in particular, with negative overtones. But his critiques are centered around an observation of rampant materialism and individualism, which devalues certain communities and the marginalized, and fair enough. But on the side of the isolationist conservatives, there's a desire to get one's house in order before reaching out to others in assistance. The world is full of different problems, but we need to fix the problems in our own house and in our own backyard before we can be of any real use to anyone else. <clears throat> I'm deeply sympathetic to this approach uh, due to my abiding love of the principle of subsidiarity. But we have to balance this approach with, with subsidiarity, which shows how intensely, or solidarity rather, which shows how intently interconnected the human family is. 
And what is more, the baptized are supernaturally brothers and sisters in an even more pronounced way than a mere natural association. The problem with globalism, which is the most pronounced, uh, is the lens of seeing the world in material terms to the neglect of the spiritual. Uh, I wrote about this extensively in my two-part summary of Deus Caritas Est by Pope Benedict XVI, which you can find on gooddistinctions.com. We have a responsibility to provide for the material necessities of those in need, which is called the preferential option for the poor, but we cannot fulfill this due to the neglect of the spiritual needs of the person. Rising alongside globalization was an insidious secularism which attempted to remove God from society. So riding the wave of the Enlightenment, Friedrich Nietzsche famously wrote, God is dead. But most people don't understand the point that he was making. He's not simply announcing his own growing personal atheism. The quote continues, God is dead, Nietzsche writes. God remains dead, and we have killed him. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? See, the Enlightenment was deeply disorienting because Christendom cannot exist apart from a Christian worldview and Christian societal ordering. When the Enlightenment thinkers and actors unmoored society from these deep roots and outstretched arms to heaven, the response was the dramatic collapse of the moral value structure of Christian society. With continued globalization, the secularism continued to creep along the entire globe. Now it's countercultural and an oddity to be a believer, much less a Christian. The nihilism of Nietzsche saw that society was shaking off the temporal influence of Christianity, but he also remarked that the shadows of God would still need to be vanquished, the vestiges of the Christian worldview. In our current postmodern world, this is certainly coming true pragmatically. The main problem with this, and thus with what globalism is effectively importing and exporting ideologically these days, is that God is not dead and never will be. Human nature does not change just because some European narcissists of the last centuries say so. Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and Marx in various iterations referred to the offers of Christian religion as the comfort of certainty. Marx in particular refers to religion as the opiate of the masses. Now I think this shows just how twisted the notions of Christianity were at the time. Jesus did not come to bring us comfort. He told us to pick up our cross and follow him. The Christian life is hard. Yes, the promise of heaven is a comfort, but it also happens to be true because the source is trustworthy. Unfortunately, globalism has led to a bland approach to religious truths and especially moral prescripts, which has devolved into moral relativism, subjectivism, and indifferentism. Indifferentism. Even within the church, we can sense the effects of these trends. Many Catholics, lay, religious, and clergy alike are awash in the cultural cocktail of crappy creeds being advanced by every human source with no reference to the transcendent, objective truth, and the source of truth, God himself. All of that being said, more than good philosophical and theological convictions, globalism can be a great force for good. 
Humanity is interconnected. Through mass communication, we can reach out to those around us and those halfway across the globe in an instant. And if those using modern, these modern technologies are virtuous in order toward God, then the Holy Spirit uh, can bear fruit in these interactions. So while it's healthy to critique what is morally ambiguous or evil, it is important to see things as they currently are and then help order our society back towards God. Unless we think this is an impossible task, remember, charity begins at home. So let's start there. So before we get into Pope Francis's comments relating to socialism and globalism, I think it's worth looking at his own upbringing and cultural context. We are the product of nature and nurture in many real and lasting ways, and Pope Francis is no different. Jorge Mario Bergoglio was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina in 1936 to Italian parents. His family left Italy to escape the fascist oppression of Benito Mussolini in 1929. Communism sought to abolish private property. Socialism advocated government ownership of the means of production, and fascism left the means of production in private hands, but through government and corporate collusion, directed every economic decision. Um, so young Jorge worked as a bouncer and a, a janitor before training as a chemist and working as a technician in a food science laboratory. At the age of 22, he discerned a vocation to the priesthood in the Society of Jesus, known as the Jesuits. And as he, as he grew up, our thoughts and opinions on matters change. As we grow up, rather, our thoughts and opinions on matters change, whether it's politically, socially, economically, religiously. Um, these changes might be a deepening and maturing, um, <clears throat> a complete break for something new, or an exploration which eventually comes full circle. What's consistent is that our cultural experiences and our upbringing color our approaches. And in the case of Jorge Bergoglio in Argentina, Juan Perón took power in 1946 after World War II and held power until he was overthrown in 1955. And I think that Juan Perón is the key to understanding Pope Francis's approach to society and politics. Perónism is a form of government so or co corporate socialism rather, but is seen by many as right wing. Confused yet? Well, Juan Perón was an Argentine nationalist and a populist. Populism is neither right nor left wing. It's a way to stir up public support amongst the working class. Juan Perón, though he was a socialist, harbored former Nazi officials. He was fairly isolationist. He was anti-clerical and he got on the bad side of the church when he worked to legalize divorce. He supported labor unions and corporatized them. He used violence and dictatorial rule to maintain power, but all the while styled himself as a man of the people. So though a socialist in practice, Juan Perón had a well-documented respect for Benito Mussolini, a fascist. So I think it's fair to say that Juan Perón was willing to support any policy which helped him retain power, a hallmark of populists. And Juan Perón is key to Pope Francis's approach because this is the society which Jorge Bergoglio grappled with from 10 years old and forward. And even after Juan Perón was removed, his policies and ideas remained prevalent in Argentine politics into the 21st century. 
So keep that in mind as we look at what Pope Francis has to say about socialism and globalism. Americans especially are notorious for reading everything in light of American politics and economic ideologies. Argentina is vastly different from the United States politically, socially, and economically. If we approach Pope Francis's writings on social and economic structuring with narrow vision, then we will miss the forest for the trees. So now finally, we can turn our attention to the question, is Pope Francis a socialist or a globalist? And I'm going to look, uh, focus on looking at the three most authoritative documents from Pope Francis, his encyclicals Lumen Fidei, Laudato Si, and Fratelli Tutti. I'll also touch on his 2013 apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium. I'm not writing a book on the man, nor am I claiming to exhaustively treat this question, but the conversation I want to start here is, what does he actually promulgate in his ordinary and universal magisterium as the Pope? Popes are free to hold private opinions and even express them publicly, but they don't hold the weight of an encyclical letter. So we'll stick to these three documents. And if you want to sort through the ambiguous statements the Pope has made or dive into his airplane interviews, then by all means, please go for it. Okay, Lumen Fidei. 2013, was re released shortly after Pope Francis was elected, was actually written by Pope Benedict XVI. Nonetheless, being promulgated by Francis, we should charitably assume that he is asserting what is therein contained. This encyclical is in the same vein as Deus Caritas Est and Space Salvi on charity and hope, and is about the third theological virtue of faith. This is a largely theological text without much discussion of politics or economics, but there's one pertinent idea that is repeated twice. In paragraph 14, we read, The individual's act of faith finds its place within a community, within the common we of the people who in faith are like a single person, my firstborn son, as God would describe all of Israel. Likewise, in paragraph 43, we hear, since faith is a reality lived within the community of the church, part of the common we, children can be supported by others, their parents and godparents, and welcomed into their faith, which is the faith of the church. And I think these two paragraphs, when taken as one idea, are a concrete expression of solidarity and subsidiarity in the life of the church. The corporate we of the church stretches across the entire globe, and in purgatory in heaven, but the instantiation is in the local, the family, the cell of society. As far as globalism is concerned, this seems like a perfectly balanced approach. The understanding that the integrity of the faith is vital is beautifully expounded here. We read, since faith is one, it must be professed in all its purity and integrity, precisely because all the articles of faith are interconnected. To deny one of them, even of those that seem least important, is tantamount to distorting the whole. Each period of history can find this or that point of faith easier or harder to accept. Hence the need for vigilance in ensuring that the positive faith is passed on in its entirety, and that all aspects of the profession of faith are duly emphasized. Indeed, inasmuch as the unity of faith is the unity of the church, to subtract something from the faith is to subtract something from the veracity of communion. And that comes from paragraph 48. The unity of faith is the unity of the church. 
so Pope Francis takes a global view of the church, which he should, then the accompanying principle is unity of belief. From the beginning, this has been one of the unambiguous guiding principles of the church. There is a unity of governance, teaching, preaching, and means of sanctification. It's only in Jesus that we are united, and this is the light of life for society. The Pope also writes in paragraph 54, modernity sought to build a universal brotherhood based on equality. Yet we gradually came to realize that this brotherhood, lacking a reference to a common father as its ultimate foundation, cannot endure. Uh, now, it's abundantly clear that Pope Benedict XVI wrote these words, but Pope Francis promulgated them. This is what he believes. By living the faith in integrity locally and based in subsidiarity is ordered to the common good of society. Paragraph 50 says, faith does not merely grant interior firmness, a steadfast conviction on the part of the believer. It also sheds light on every human relationship because it is born of love and reflects God's own love. So in this first encyclical of the Francis pontificate, there can be no doubt that any sense of a globalized reality is tempered with subsidiarity and a unity of faith and a bold proclamation of that faith. And this is all the more clarified by Pope Francis' apostolic exhortation released in November of 2013, Evangelii Gaudium. In that document, Pope Francis condemns a throwaway culture, as he calls it, which treats human beings like consumer goods. In this context, the Pope decries trickle-down theories uh, of economics, which, as he said, assume that economic growth encouraged by the free market will inevitably succeed in bringing about greater justice and inclusiveness in the world. This opinion, which has never been confirmed by the facts, expresses a crude and naive trust in the goodness of those wielding economic power and in the sacralized workings of the prevailing economic system. The Pope continues, Meanwhile, the excluded are still waiting to sustain a lifestyle which excludes others or to sustain enthusiasm for that selfish ideal, a globalization of indifference has developed. Almost without being aware of it, we end up being incapable of feeling compassion at the outcry of the poor, weeping for other people's pain and feeling a need to help them, as though all this were someone else's responsibility and not our own. The culture of prosperity deadens us. We are thrilled if the market offers us something new to purchase. In the meantime, all those lives stunted for lack of opportunity seem a mere spectacle. They fail to move us. That's Evangelii Gaudium, paragraph 54. Clearly, the Pope is condemning a form of capitalism which relies on fallen human beings to do the right thing for the poor and marginalized. It does not seem to me that he is condemning free markets or capitalism per se. Rather, he is condemning passive indifferentism. He also says rightly that this indifferentism has been globalized. Thus, in the same paragraph, we seem to have a condemnation of a certain kind of free market capitalism and a suspicion of globalist trends. He says that money has become an idol and imbalances in financial markets are caused by a dehumanizing effect which sees human persons only as a consumer. He goes on to say, 
While the earnings of a minority are growing exponentially, so too is the gap separating the majority from the prosperity enjoyed by those happy few. This imbalance is the result of ideologies which defend the absolute autonomy of the marketplace and financial speculation. Consequently, they reject the right of states charged with vigilance for the common good to exercise any form of control. A new tyranny is thus born, invisible and often virtual, which unilaterally and relentlessly imposes its own laws and rules. Debt and the accumulation of interest also make it difficult for countries to realize the potential of their own economies and keep citizens from enjoying their real purchasing power. That's from paragraph 56. So now we're getting into a condemnation not just of trickle-down systems, but of unfettered and unregulated free markets, which he calls a deified market. What's interesting is his reasons why. He condemns unfettered free markets because he says that they reject God and seek to rule rather than serve. Further, it's not the markets which are problematic so much as the people pulling the levers. They lack a non-ideological ethics, which seeks to serve human persons. He quotes someone saying, not to share one's wealth with the poor is to steal from them and to take away their livelihood. It is not our own goods which we hold, but theirs. Golly, who said that? Karl Marx? Some dirty communist or socialist? Uh, no, actually it was St. John Chrysostom, the great church father of Eastern antiquity. Pope Francis ends this subsection by saying, Money must serve, not rule. The Pope loves everyone, rich and poor alike, but he is obliged in the name of Christ to remind all that the rich must help, respect, and promote the poor. I exhort you to generous solidarity and to the return of economics and finance to an ethical approach which favors human beings. What the Pope is talking about here is principles of ethics and social life not economic and societal structures as such. Reading him uncharitably, I remember hearing mostly American conservatives mouth off that the Pope is anti-capitalist and therefore a socialist. Well, it seems more likely from Evangelii Gaudium that the Pope is lamenting any system which is based on greedy materialism which dehumanizes people. The Pope then turns his attention to secularization, which he says tends to reduce the faith in the church to the sphere of private and the personal. It rejects the transcendent, deteriorates ethics, weakens a sense of sin, and increases relativism. Further, he mentions that, quote, in uh, this is paragraph 67, the individualism of our postmodern and globalized era favors a lifestyle which weakens the development and stability of personal relationships and distorts family bonds. And I think that this is a fruitful approach because he's describing the problems he's seeing and then proposing the principles to deal with them effectively from the mind and heart of the church. This is not a support or condemnation of globalism so much as a sober look at where we are currently. I highly recommend reading this document in its entirety to get the full picture. Suffice it to say, there's nothing in Evangelii Gaudium which supports the hypothesis that Pope Francis is a socialist or a globalist, at least in his universal and ordinary magisterium. So let's go on to 2015 to Laudato Si. 
Laudato Si was written about the, common, uh, the care of our common home. It's an encyclical about environmental stewardship, but Pope Francis touches on several economic issues. The Pope is skeptical of international political responses to the protection of marginalized people and ecosystems. He says too many special interests can, quote, end up trumping the common good and manipulating information so that their own plans will not be affected. And he says that the consequence of this is that the most one can expect is superficial rhetoric, sporadic acts of philanthropy, and perfunctory expressions of concern for the environment, whereas any genuine attempt by groups within society to introduce change is viewed as a nuisance based on romantic illusions or an obstacle to be circumvented. And this is the same skepticism about international rule, which he expressed in 2013. Quoting from St. John Paul II, Pope Francis defends the universal destination of goods, development policies which focus on human rights, and a defense of legitimate right to private property. His critique here is that God's gifts are being used for the benefit of only a few, and that unjust habits need to be reexamined. Further, Pope Francis puts globalization in his crosshairs again when he investigates the creativity and power of technology. He writes this in paragraph 109. The economy accepts every advance in technology with a view to profit, without concern for its potentially negative impact on human beings. However, he then repeats the same concern of free market trickle-down economic approaches that he brought forth in Evangelii Gaudium. He says, some circles maintain that current economics and technology will solve all environmental problems and argue in popular and non-technical terms that the problems of global hunger and poverty will be resolved simply by market growth. They are less concerned with certain economic theories, which today scarcely anybody dares defend, than with their actual operation in the functioning of the economy. He admits that those who espouse such views do not always do so in words, but he says their deeds run contrary to the items he thinks are important. Namely, these priorities are, as he says, more balanced levels of production, a better distribution of wealth, concern for the environment, and the rights of future generations. Pope Francis does not then offer tangible steps of what more balanced levels of production would entail, but a charitable read would suggest that he's referring back to materialism and people being treated as commodities. He does not seem to be referring to who should own the means of production. He calls for a better distribution of wealth, but he clarifies this earlier in the text. There are those who are destitute and do not have their basic needs covered, while a small percentage of people have more resources than they could ever use or even effectively manage. But he does not suggest that wealth be redistributed in a socialist way. As far as Laudato Si is concerned, there's a lot more to say related to a skepticism on the Pope's part regarding global and international approaches to the issue of environmental care. But I want to share one final passage on employment. The view of Pope Francis here is as far from socialism and globalism as one could possibly get. And yet, many more conservative readers bristle at any possible critique of the free market and are uncharitable in the rest of their reading. It is a longer quote, but well worth reading carefully, especially if you're prone to saying unequivocally in a knee-jerk way that Pope Francis is a socialist. So here's the passage. 
In order to continue providing employment, it is imperative to promote an economy which favors productive diversity and business creativity. For example, there's a great variety of small-scale food production systems which feed the greater part of the world's peoples, using a modest amount of land and producing less waste, be it in small agricultural parcels, in orchards and gardens, hunting and wild harvesting, or local fishing. Economies of scale, especially in the agricultural sector, end up forcing smallholders to sell their land or to abandon their traditional crops. Their attempts to to move to other more diversified means of production prove fruitless because of the difficulty of linkage with regional and global markets or because the infrastructure for sales and transport is geared to larger businesses. Civil authorities have the right and duty to adopt clear and firm measures in support of small producers in differentiated production to ensure economic freedom from which all can effectively benefit, restraints occasionally have to be imposed on those possessing greater resources and financial power. To claim economic freedom while real conditions bar many people from actual access to it, and while possibilities for employment continue to shrink, it is to practice a doublespeak which brings politics into disrepute. Business is a noble vocation directed to producing wealth and improving our world. It can be a fruitful source of prosperity for the areas in which it operates, especially if it sees the creation of jobs as an essential part of its service to the common good. Moving on to 2020, Pope Francis's document, Fratelli Tutti, on fraternity and social friendship uh, is really quite excellent. It contains a lot of real gems. My favorite quotation, which I think shows Pope Francis' mind on the interconnectedness of man, is this. This is from paragraph 33. We gorged ourselves on networking and lost the taste of fraternity. This is a fabulous turn of phrase that harkens back to the Pope's desire to see people viewed as persons rather than as commodities. As a social encyclical, Fratelli Tutti touches on society, persons, economics, and politics throughout. And it's also quite long in terms of encyclicals. As a social encyclical, it contains several prudential judgments, opinions, and non-definitive ideas. So it's a bit different from the norm as far as encyclicals go. However, it's highly worth reading in its entirety. But I want to just touch on a few main points here. He begins the document taking swings against globalism. He says this, As I was writing this letter, the COVID-19 pandemic unexpectedly erupted, exposing our false securities. Aside from the different ways that various countries responded to the crisis, their inability to work together became evident, quite evident. For all our hyperconnectivity, we witnessed a fragmentation that made it more difficult to resolve problems that affect us all. Anyone who thinks that the only lesson to be learned was the need to improve what we are already doing or to refine existing systems and regulations is denying reality. So the Pope seems to come squarely down against what globalism is doing. He says, in in part quoting Pope Benedict XVI, he says, local conflicts and disregard for the common good are exploited by the global economy in order to impose a single cultural model. This culture unifies the world, but divides persons and nations. For as society becomes ever more globalized, it makes us neighbors, but does not make us brothers. 
He then proceeds to provide a blistering critique of globalism and attributes to it the growing problem of loneliness. He writes this. He says, we are more alone than ever in an increasingly, increasingly massified world that promotes individual interests and weakens the communitarian dimension of life. Indeed, there are markets where individuals become mere consumers or bystanders. As a rule, the advance of this kind of globalism strengthens the identity of the more powerful who can protect themselves, but it tends to diminish the identity of the weaker and poorer regions, making them more vulnerable and dependent. In this way, political life becomes increasingly fragile in the face of transnational economic powers that operate with the principle of divide and conquer. That's from paragraph 12. The weak and the poor are the object of the Pope's concern because they are precisely those with the quietest voice in society. And there are those who claim to speak for the poor for their own gain. But as we look at the next quote, remember Juan Perón and the Pope's early experiences. He writes this. He says, Lack of concern for the vulnerable can hide behind a populism that exploits them demagogically for its own purposes, or a liberalism that serves the economic interests of the powerful. In both cases, it becomes difficult to envisage an open world that makes room for everyone, including the most vulnerable, and shows respect for different cultures. That's from paragraph 155. The Pope goes on to critique liberal approaches, which speak of a respect for freedom without the roots of a shared narrative. He says that leftist ideologies linked to individualistic ways of acting are ineffective and leave people in need. He calls for a greater spirit of fraternity, as well as, quote, more efficient worldwide organization to help resolve the problems plaguing the abandoned who are suffering and dying in poor countries. So on first blush, that seems like an endorsement of a form of globalism and an international organization. But what I think he's saying is that a more global pool of resources is needed to help the poorest nations move into a post-industrial phase. So rather than proposing socialism or a concrete form of globalism, the Pope rightly says this. He says, it also shows that there is no one solution, no single acceptable methodology, no economic recipe that can be applied indiscriminately to all. Even the most rigorous scientific studies can propose different courses of action. So as the document progresses, there are more of the same critiques of trickle-down economics which clearly the Pope does not care for, populism and a materialism which diminishes the dignity of persons. Then in paragraph 172 and following, Pope Francis entered in, enters into a few paragraphs which I personally take most issue with. He calls for agreements among national governments to form a, quote, world authority regulated by law, which ought to, quote, at least to promote more effective world organizations equipped with the power to provide for the common good, the elimination of hunger and poverty, and the sure defense of fundamental human rights. And I find that problematic because it seems to conflict with the principle of subsidiarity. But then the Pope th takes things a step further into waters which I dare not wade. He says this, in this regard, I would also note the need for a reform of the United Nations organization, 
and likewise in economic, of economic institutions and international finance, so that the concept of the family of nations can acquire real teeth. So uh, the thought of the UN with real teeth um, is the stuff of nightmares, uh, at least for me. Globalist governments do not seem efficient or helpful to give teeth to an organization which can so easily be ruled by only a few countries with real sway is a recipe for disaster. I think that the UN should continue to arbitrate disputes and be a diplomatic force for good, but I am inclined to let their power end there. Comments on the United Nations notwithstanding, Fratelli Tutti brings up a lot of great points worth contemplating. There are several other points which I would like to have a productive conversation with the Holy Father, but these items do not fall under the category of faith and moral teachings of the church. They're almost completely prudential matters. So disagreement within reason and charity is perfectly acceptable on those prudential matters. So here's my bottom line. Based on what he's taught in his ordinary and universal magisterium, Pope Francis is not a socialist or a globalist. Uh, his critiques pick up on some sincerely problematic phrasings, but are largely uncharitable in their approach. As a private individual, I know that Pope Francis has condemned socialism and com communism, but he seems very sympathetic to those ideas and what they're trying to accomplish. But this does not mean that he is firmly in that camp. He is a harsh critic of capitalism, but he does not seem to be endorsing socialism as a viable alternative. As far as globalism goes, the Pope speaks to a need for adherence to subsidiarity and solidarity, but he also espouses certainly pointedly globalist views, especially regarding international organizations and interreligious cooperation. In my opinion, these actions and especially joint statements with non-Christian religious leaders are often misleading and imprudent. But the course of this exploration, exploration has been his ordinary and universal magisterial teachings, not his private thoughts, or even his public thoughts as a private theologian. In all things, we must read what people say with charity and an open mind. And of course, we must do so within reason. As G.K. Chesterton said, the object of, an open, of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. For a further look at what we here at Good Distinctions mean by being open-minded, check out episode three. And until next time, have a great week. And remember, good distinctions are the spice of life. Thanks for stopping by. We'll see you again soon.